National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Happy New Year. As we welcome 2022, we are taking a moment to review the last year as we say goodbye to 2021. The Register's Rome correspondent Edward Penton joins us for a year in review of the Vatican. And then EWTN News' legal analyst Andrea Pachati bayer gives us the highlights on religious freedom. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, joined by my co-host Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Executive Editor. For many Catholics, this year brought a welcomed return to Mass after COVID-19 restrictions were lifted and Sunday obligations uh, to attend weekly Mass were restored. Um, But in some countries, however, in Europe especially, limits remain and vaccine passes have added a practical and moral challenge uh, to returning to the liturgy. Uh, The continued pandemic, though, did not keep the Holy Father from traveling Uh, to Iraq, Hungary, Slovakia, and Greece. Also, my colleague Matthew Bunsen was able to attend some of those trips. But also, from the Vatican, Pope Francis opened a synod on synodality and curbed the traditional Latin Mass. That's the year at the Vatican in a nutshell, but here to unpack 2021, we are joined by Edward Penton, the Register's longtime Rome correspondent. Welcome, Edward. Hi, Jeanette. Good to be with you. Merry Christmas. So I gave a big nutshell of what happened in this year. There's a lot more that happened than that. And, uh, but from your perspective, Edward, what was the biggest news coming from the Vatican? Well, I think in terms of, of the church and going forward, I think uh, Pope Francis's motive proprio, his, his decree, Traditionis Custodes, was probably the biggest news um, that limited the traditional Latin Mass, uh, because I think whether one goes to the traditional Mass or not, um, it was very much uh, a line in the sand, if you like. It was very revealing about, um, and this pontificate has been very revealing in many different ways, but that was particularly revealing about the Pope's uh, position on this and his and his will, wish to go forward. And his clear vision, it seems to be, and, and uh, judging by what it says in the document, that there's really only going to be one institutional church going forward and that uh, and that is the one that uh, accepts all the reforms that have come since the second vatican council and that the those who adhere to tradition at least in the liturgy and in other ways um those will have to come on board as it were with with those reforms so so it's very much a significant um event in the in the pontificate and this year especially absolutely i think um i would agree with you on that that seemed to be the biggest News coming from Rome. Um, of course, if we recap it, it it would be to say, was that mid July? Uh, we mm-hmm. we were given this motu proprio. It's basically calling the Novus Ordo the unique expression of the Roman rite. So that is the Mass uh, that that all Catholics must attend and accept. Although um, some are still free if they have gotten permission from their bishop to celebrate uh, the Latin Mass. I mean, that's, that's a summary. And, of course, the faithful yeah. can attend those Mass. Matthew wants to jump in. So, Matthew, what's your perspective on this uh, big event of the year? Well, I wanted to uh, touch uh, on the 
dubia that uh, subsequently came out just a few weeks ago uh, and the impact that that has had because it uh, instead of necessarily clearing up some of the questions that many bishops had around the world it seems to have only added to not just the polarization and fear related to this but also some of the additional questions that bishops still have about what their actual authority is what's been the response mm -hmm. edward uh, both within your curial sources but also the bishops that you talk to around the world well i think there's a certain sense of of whether this is actually um, does have authority and force. There are certain questions about the canonical aspects to this document and whether it really does have the force that perhaps Pope Francis and the, the, the Vatican want it to have. And so there's still a bit of, it's still a gray area there. And I think there's still a lack of clarity about just how, how significant this all is, especially as the guidelines you, you referred to, Matthew. And, and I think there's going to be a few, few weeks or months ahead in which that's got to sort of be threshed out and and i think bishops want to know whether that that really is um it's something they're going to have to really follow to the to the letter to the law of the law if you like or whether they can there's room for maneuver and whether there's, there's certain ways that they can allow the the traditional mass to go forward um but it's sort of in line as well with what pope francis wants and i think there's going to be that um that discussion going forward. I, I know that the uh, the Bishop of uh, Phoenix, I think, has already put out a document which which sort of says carry on as normal, but uh, let's see what happens in the future. And I think that's going to be the case with a lot of bishops um, going forward. And that that's, that's what happened after July as well. But I think even though these guidelines were meant to sort of uh, bring those bishops more into line and to enforce this harder, I don't know if that's going to happen. I think we'll just have to see uh, in the months ahead. Right, and we haven't seen too much yet here in the United States. Uh, I think on Monday, Cardinal Supich in Chicago did roll out mm. his uh, version of of the Pope's, um, or I, I should say these, these latest clarifications. Uh, he rolled that out. It seemed like he might have had been tipped off to what was coming because it was ready just immediately after Christmas, mm -hmm. um, which didn't seem possible uh, without having known in advance. Uh, but the Register will be continuing to cover this story. We've heard from a lot of listeners of their concern over this, and and uh, of course it's important um, to recognize the beauty that the uh, traditional Latin Mass has given the Church for so many years uh, in terms of worship. Edward, I have a feeling though that this story, the story of the traditional Latin Mass, wouldn't be what the Vatican Communication Office would call the biggest event of of the Vatican this year. If you had mm. to think, <laughs> as the Vatican <laughs> officials might think, or as the Pope might think, what do you think they would say is the biggest news of the Church this year? Sure. Well, it's hard to say, Jeanette. I mean, the Pope is is quite inscrutable. It's difficult to know quite what he <laughs> he really thinks about these things. And officials, of course, have various opinions, and uh, they're widely differing opinions. But um, but I think possibly the Pope will probably be pleased with the synod, the, the synod on synodality has got underway. I think that's very much a part of his reform effort. He wants, um, he's very keen on this, this vision for the church that he's had, which he's been pushing quite hard for, for over six years now, since he first announced this vision he has for the church. And I think, I think he, um, I think that's probably something that he's really keen to, to see completed. That's going to be over two years, of course, but, uh, it was actually going to start next year, but he's brought it forward to begin 
Uh, he began it uh, in October this year at the local level, and then it goes to the national and universal level the year after. So I think that's going to be, um, that's been a, a significant, I think you'll see it as a significant achievement on his part. Um, uh, but I think also um, in the Vatican, well, I think in the, the papacy, I think as well his trips have been uh, a success. I think he's he'd probably be very um, grateful, especially for the trip to Iraq. I think that was... Um, uh, quite a quite a feat, considering that it was still in the uh, the, the midst of COVID, and um, it was something that uh, the, no pope has done before. Uh, Francis has done many things as a first, and that's another one. And uh, I think he'll be pleased that he got to Iraq um, back in March. And I think it went very well. I think the people there were very grateful for his visits, and uh, and I think it came. I think a lot of them feel it came at the right time, despite, I think, a lot of concerns at the time that uh, it wasn't the right time and that there were still problems and that the COVID, of course, was another uh, obstacle which um, which they managed to overcome. So I think um, so. I think that's another, you'll see that as another feather in his cap, I think, this uh, year. Yes, and of course, your um, compatriot, Father Benedict Keeley, has written for The Register recently a commentary about uh, Iraq Christians, uh, especially mm. bringing some... I guess, highlights to good news there in Iraq. And one of the pieces of that good news was a church being built, uh, dedicated to St. Thomas. Uh, and and even though they didn't have pews and, and uh, a, a proper altar, the, the final altar, the permanent altar, they celebrated Christ, Christmas masses uh, at this church uh, in, in Erbil, I believe it was. And that's a beautiful witness to rebuilding and and perhaps to some of the energy that Pope Francis did bring uh, the Iraqi Christians. Uh, I do want to say, though, Father Benedict Keeley was was reminding us in the West, especially, not to forget uh, that there's still a lot of work to be done there in Iraq in helping these Christians yes. get back to normal life. And so I recommend... Uh, that our listeners go to ncregister.com and, and read this uh, commentary. It's called, From the Nineveh Plain, Iraqi Christians Focus on Light in the Darkness. But Edward, back to this year at the Vatican, mm. uh, there, of course, have been Vatican trials, which I, I'm sure many people would like to forget, but this, I hope, is still a part of reform efforts going on in the Vatican. Where do the trials stand? Yes, well, the the main one, of course, is this trial, of so-called trial of the century for the Vatican. It's the first time that you've had such a big trial regarding a, a, fina a financial scandal, uh, this London deal, which ended up uh, losing the Vatican uh, hundreds of billions of euros. Um, and this is now being um, those allegedly involved in this this deal uh, within the Vatican and and lay people as well are all on trial. It's ten of them. Um, and that's, but the, the trial is, um, hasn't really got underway due to problems with um, the prosecution and the way they've uh, brought this case to the courts. There have been some errors made, which the defence um, have picked up on, and they've they've tried to use those in many ways to to for their clients' benefits, of course. Um, but that's merely delayed the process, so it hasn't really got underway. Even though it actually started in July, it won't actually really get underway until February next year. Um, but it's it's certainly a, a way upon, on the, the road to reform. I think um, this is being seen as very much uh, part of this reform of the Vatican finances. 
But we'll have to see whether all of the issues get uh, properly scrutinized and whether there can be a really fair trial for all involved. And uh, that's still an open question. Um, as far as curial reform is concerned, that's also been a a bit of um, rather uh, uh, delayed as we still haven't got this apostolic constitution, this new uh, document reforming the Roman Curia that's been in the works now for, for over eight years um, and there's mm. still no sign of it. So so that's rather stalled a little bit uh, and we don't really know when that's going to come out either. So that could be this next year, it could be, it could never come out, some believe, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to see. It's certainly been a long time uh, in in uh, in the making yeah very good well edward as always we appreciate your reporting uh from rome we will have to speak again soon about what to expect in 2022 and uh, matthew i guess i should say a word you did get to go uh to hungary uh with the holy father or at least while he was there and uh, i'm sure that was a highlight of of your year uh, it was in an extraordinary way to not just to see if Pope Francis is closing mass, but also the Eucharistic procession through the streets of Budapest. It's something that I will always remember and treasure that I could be there for. Absolutely. And what uh, a great time for it as we all seek to return to our Sunday obligation, return to the Eucharist. And of course, the U.S. bishops are really trying to encourage all of us here uh, to revive our Eucharistic uh, worship. So when we come back, Matthew and I will hear from EWTN News legal analyst Andrea Pachati-Bayer about how religious liberty fared in 2021. This is Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, joined by my co-host Matthew Bunsen here on Register Radio. So 2021 seemed to have continued a trend with the rise of religious liberty lawsuits. Uh, but also it was a significant year of wins for those cases. In fact, among some of the news we covered earlier in this year was a study that showed the Supreme Court ruled in favor of religious liberty increasingly over the last decade. In fact, that study said over the last 15 years, 81% of the time, religion won in cases before the nation's highest court. That's good news. 
Joining Matthew and me is Andrea Pachati Bayer, who has covered a lot of this good news for us in the religious liberty front. She is a frequent guest here on Register Radio and on EWTN News uh, as a legal analyst uh, for, for EWTN News. She's also the director of the Conscience Project and co-host of the podcast Religious Freedom Matters. Andrea, welcome back. Thanks, Jeanette, for having me on again. I love being with you guys. Awesome. We love having you. So let's start with the big stuff. I mean, I mentioned how religious liberty seems to win when it's placed before a court, a case is placed before the highest court. That's good news. What would you say is the biggest religious liberty news of this year? Well, it seems like it's been an eternity, but I would have to say Fulton. And if Mm -hmm. anyone remembers, that's the Archdiocese of Philadelphia foster care case that was decided at the end of the Supreme Court's term last term, which was ending in at the end at the beginning of July. And it was uh, the Archdiocese foster care. It's been going on for over 100 years. And they were told by the city that they had to certify same sex married couples or go out of business. They stood their ground and they went all the way to the Supreme Court and they were fighting scrappy Catholics, as (laughs) as I hope we all are. And they won. And what was wonderful about it is it was a unanimous decision. And uh, it's it's quite exceptional right now when we think about things in Washington being so fractured and divided. But all nine justices agreed that there were exceptions that were allowed in the city's anti-discrimination policy. And once you allow for those exceptions, you can't discriminate against people who want exemptions based on religious belief. So that's a huge watershed case. Um, My favorite, I'd been tracking it from the district court uh, cases. And and really, I admire all the heroes, those that are working at the agency and the longtime foster parents that have been siding with their agency in opening doors to needy kids in Philadelphia. For whom some some of whom you were able to write the amicus brief for and and help them to get their voices heard uh, before the court, right? Absolutely. This was one of those um, great honors that I had in presenting. I've presented a, a couple of amicus briefs before the Supreme Court in recent years, and this was um, in the, at the petition stage, urging the court to actually hear the case. A number of former foster care children and foster parents that had worked with the agency, and then when the Supreme Court decided, we broadened that broadened that out to be able to go across the country. People that had worked with agencies that closed down under similar pressure, or those that were in current legal battles. And it was really an amazing um, experience for me as a mom Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to hear the beautiful stories of how a loving home and stability was a game changer in the lives of these kids. So Andrea, is the case, um, is the Fulton case or the decision likely to affect other uh, court cases? Is this kind of an isolated decision for that particular uh, situation, that particular case? Or do you think this will have broader ramifications? You know, there's always naysayers whenever there's a victory. There's always people that try not to try to diminish the victory that was had. Um, People really did say, hey, this is just limited to the the unique particularities of the contract that providers have with the city of Philadelphia. It's worth as a postscript noting that the city of Philadelphia entered into a settlement agreement with um, the plaintiffs and with the archdiocese to be able to allow things so that they wouldn't have to go back to court Mm -hmm. in the future over... uh, 
changes in their contract. But I see there being a greater issue here, and some of it was found in the concurring opinions, particularly written by Justice Samuel Alito, um, basically setting out the standard for a robust protection of religious exercise and highlighting that these are clashes that we're seeing um, and that they don't need to be an either or. You don't need to say either you're going to vindicate the rights of same-sex couples under the law or you're going to vindicate religious freedom, but there's a way to do both. And the best way to do that was the way that was proposed by the church in this case, which is to allow for an accommodation so that agencies could continue to serve consistent with their beliefs. Sure. Well, we hope we hope to see that um, kind of reasonableness uh, proceed in this next year. You know, Andrea, you know this very, very well because uh, you and Joan Frawley Desmond, the co-host on Religious uh, Freedom Matters, have talked about this in, in your podcast in early December. Uh, you, you ran a series on education and religious freedom matters. Education has been in the news so much this year, especially in our coverage here at the Register. There were There's good development in Catholic education. There's a, a push towards um, greater parental involvement in education. Um, but there really is also an intersection between education and religious freedom. How did you see that this year? Well, it's very interesting. A lot of it that I, the perspective that I have is informed, of course, by my Catholic faith, that we see that part of our faith is to share and inform, um, both as parents to teach our younger children, and also as members of the church to be able to teach about the truths of the human person, about the teachings of the church, and to not have the government interfere with our ability to do that, either through our schools or our church organizations, or to be able to, as parents, involve ourselves as primary educators in of our children, whether we're having our children at religious schools or if they're at the public government-run schools and at the university level as well, to be able to live and study consistent with our beliefs. And we're really seeing the church, I think, in America taking on a leadership role in this respect as an institution. Our schools responded to the needs of many families and many children that weren't being served by their local schools. And at the voting booth, parents were starting to say, especially in, in the state that I live in, in Virginia, parents are going to be involved and interested and participating in their kids' education. And any political official doesn't respect that is not one they're going to, we're going to vote for. So it's very interesting to see the leadership and the, the awakening of American parents these days. Yeah, uh, Andrea, uh, COVID-19 and all of its variants have had such a massive impact, uh, not just on schools, but on families and everything else. Uh, it's been a pretty polarizing year, much as 2020 was, in, in terms of uh, mandates and laws that are being passed by states banning also mandates. Some of this polarization though, has landed some cases in court. Uh, in what ways did this has the pandemic really related matters uh, touching on religious liberty? Well, at the beginning, Matthew, of, of the year, we saw the Supreme Court really setting down a marker for the right to worship, um, especially in response to what I believe was government overreach um, in response to the pandemic by putting specific restrictions on the right to worship. 
at the beginning of this year, the Supreme Court really made it clear that you can't discriminate against the right to worship. Um, if you're going to allow for people to go to big box stores or casinos in the case of the state of Nevada, you can't be treating um, religion differently. At the end of the year, we're seeing issues of vaccine mandates without religious exemptions coming in um, in the state of, of Maine and in the state of New York for healthcare workers. The Supreme Court has yet to address these mandates on the merits. They've skirted the invitation to intervene and offer emergency relief. Um, but I do think that this is going to be an issue that's going to be coming in this coming year. And you're right, we've got to balance issues of public health and uh, the good of, of the patients that are being served. But at the same time, as Justice Neil Gorsuch said, even in times of a pandemic, the constitutional rights need to be protected and safeguarded. Absolutely. And, and you kind of spoke a little bit to what we can expect. Is there, is there anything we should be looking ahead to uh, uh, in terms of decisions or uh, hearings? You know, this year there are a couple religion cases that are being um, that have been heard by the court, and we're waiting on their decisions. One involves a school choice case out of the state of Maine um, that has a sectarian rule that excludes from a tuition assistance program for kids that live in rural areas without public schools. Um, it excludes schools that the state deems are too uh, sectarian; that they have religion runs through their curriculum. I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court, um, for sure six justices, if not more, are going to say that that's unconstitutional, mm -hmm. consistent with the court's cases. We've got a death row case involving clergy comfort, and that's a very difficult balancing act between the state's interest in uh, the death row um, execution and the interests of having a clergy member lay hands on the individual. Um, and I do think we're going to be looking at vaccine mandates and healthcare uh, for healthcare workers and religious exemptions. So it's going to be a jam-packed term uh, with <laughs> a lot of emergency, emergency. But you know what? I, I've never seen a Supreme Court better situated and better constituted to be able to face these difficult uh, questions than than the one that we currently have. Yeah, it's it's kind of exciting um, to just see where they where they go with their decisions, you know, I mean, there's, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, where I am in my perch at the register, but I don't feel like I've ever watched the Supreme Court so closely as I have watched uh, this year or, or really the past couple of years. I mean, Andrea, that's a subjective question because you're a court watcher to begin with, but do you feel like more, more eyes are on the court these days? They really are, and I was I was mentioning this to one of my older kids just just this afternoon, saying that there there are issues, and and really we're getting at a point where we have to first recognize that the Supreme Court is a human institution, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe their decisions are not going to be perfect and comprehensive and complete, but we are seeing that the truth, the law is catching up with the truth. For example, in in cases involving human life, the Supreme Court really is taking a second look at some of its prior decisions. Um, when it comes to religious freedom, like you mentioned at the top of our discussion, the Supreme Court has been a very pro-religion court, but at the same time we see government officials really encroaching on what we see to be 
a core part of how we're getting through these very difficult times, which is the right to faith. And I wanted to say a few days ago, I was at um, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts at the Norman Rockwell Museum, and there was a great uh, series of, of paintings, and there were four um, freedoms that Rockwell painted, and they were in response to FDR's speech. It was the freedom of speech, freedom uh, from want, freedom from fear, and freedom to worship God as you please or as you, you desire. And that last one is really one that I think is core to our American heritage, to our individual desire to serve God, and is one that, that at least we've got a, the judiciary willing to robustly protect. Yes, and we have to get back to it. Andrea, thank you so much for covering this very important issue for us at the register, ncregister.com, and also for your new podcast, Religious Freedom Matters. And yet any of our listeners can go to the ncregister.com website and see uh, this on the top banner. You just click Religious Freedom Matters, and you'll get this podcast, which most recently was on education. For more news analysis and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online again at ncregister.com. Register.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunton and our producer Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you.